Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SubChina Access and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I'm coming to you from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Uh, there are two topics about which one rarely hears anything positive or optimistic these days. One is, lamentably, China, and the other, maybe even more lamentably, the environment. Well, today on Seneca, I am just delighted to be joined by someone who can offer some much-needed and not just wishful liang, positive energy on, on both of these issues, and, and together, a yet a twofer. Barbara Finnemore is the Senior Attorney and Senior Strategic Director for Asia of the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, who has been at the vanguard in environmental law in China. In 2019, she published an excellent slim volume called Will China Save the Planet? She happens to be in my neighborhood. She was speaking yesterday at the Duke UNC China Leadership Summit this weekend. So I enticed her over to the Seneca South Studio here to chat about what China is doing to kick its coal addiction and to catalyze a renewable energy industry. Barbara, thanks so much for joining me here today and welcome to Seneca. It's my pleasure. It's so great to have you here. I mean, what a, the stars finally aligned. I've been meaning to get Barbara on the show for, for ages. Um, I think anybody listening to this show is probably aware that China is and has for some years been the largest carbon emitter uh, of, of any country. And they may have even, if they heard the show that I did recently with Alex Wong, they know that even in per capita carbon emissions, it has now surpassed Europe. Um, so listeners um, are probably also aware that uh, China has come a long way uh, from being regarded as something of a spoiler back, you know, just a little over a decade ago in 2009. At the uh, COP twenty five, I'm sorry. At the what was it COP what? I can't remember. I'm just going to say Copenhagen. From being regarded as something of a, a spoiler, just you know, a little over a decade ago in Copenhagen, to a leader in many regards when it comes to renewables and clean energy. So, Barbara, in your talk yesterday, which was just fantastic, uh, you really set the stage with some. I, I mean, to me, they were just kind of mind blowing statistics about about solar, about wind, about renewables in general, about batteries. Um, if you don't mind, uh, could you go over some of those major markers of progress from the last decade? I'd be happy to, Kaiser. And as you say, it's true that China is the leading emitter of greenhouse gases. Most of that comes from coal. Even today, as China is working to kick its coal addiction, it is consuming as much coal as the rest of the world put together. Mm. However, what people don't realize is that in little over a decade, China has gone from virtually no renewable energy to becoming the world leader in wind and in solar and in electric vehicles and in battery production. And through its massive economies of scale, mm. as well as its huge domestic markets, which are driving demand, China has played the major role in a dramatic decline in the cost of these clean energy technologies. Solar power has dropped by 90% oh my God. Yeah. In, in just a little over a decade. And wind power, a more mature technology, has dropped by 50%. And with China's enormous gigafactories for battery production for electric vehicles, the costs of those batteries has dropped by 87% wow. in one decade. And as a result, China has fundamentally changed the economics of clean energy throughout the world. Not just in China, but around the world. Not right? just in China. I think you said yesterday something like, I can't remember the, the percentage, but it was like, a, was it two-thirds of people uh, live in countries where the cost of renewables is now cheaper than the cost of, of coal-generated electricity. That's correct. It's two-thirds. 
It's two-thirds wow. of the world population. And we're on an even larger, uh, more significant trajectory where in the next few years, experts predict that it will be cheaper to build new wind and solar plants than to operate existing coal plants and to buy the coal <laughs> for operating existing coal plants, which can then be shut down and make a profit. Wow. I mean, that's that seems like an incredibly significant point. Is there a name for that point? Is it a parity point? Grid parity. Grid parity. That's that's what it is. Grid parity. And we're, we're really, we're, we're there. We're practically there. Grid parity is where two-thirds of the uh, population is now, but this would be the next stage of the revolution in wow. clean energy, that... where it's cheaper to build new plants and to operate existing ones. What have been the levels of investment that have made this possible? I mean, how much has China put into uh, this effort to develop its renewable sector? Over the last 10 years, mm -hmm. excluding investment in large hydro, which my many people, myself included, do not consider to be a form of renewable energy right. because of its environmental impacts, China has invested some $756 billion. My God. In renewable energy over the last decade, which is more than twice that of the next largest investor, the United States. Wow. So over 10 years, the U.S. has only... It's 300 some odd billion dollars that's into right. renewable. Um, that's that's phenomenal. A lot of this, I mean, I have to say, I've encountered a lot of my Chinese friends who conflate the idea of air pollution and the idea of greenhouse reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And in China, because of the coal thing, because it's both driven by coal, that makes some sense. Um, I would say, I mean, it's actually kind of a, a fortuitous thing that people do conflate these things in China because it seems like that was really something that gave the Chinese leadership a real kick in, in the pants to get them going. Uh, but is there a downside to that conflation? I mean, isn't it possible that if China is successful in reducing air pollution, that attention will come off of the maybe even greater problem, uh, maybe not so short term, but the greater long term global problem? of greenhouse gas emissions. You're right. Because coal is the largest source of China's devastating air pollution, as well as its CO2 emissions, it was the air pollution um, that drove the Chinese government to really begin to tackle its coal consumption for the first time. And that has good and bad impacts. Um, the risk is, number one, is that the air pollution has been of most concern along the eastern coast of China, the most populated cities. Therefore, China's focus on cutting coal consumption has been also focused in those large cities. Right. This gives an incentive to China's coal industry to move its operations out to the western part of China, where there are fewer population and therefore fewer, less concern about air pollution. That's called pollution leakage. Uh -huh. But the problem is that CO2 emissions don't know any boundaries. Right. So wherever the coal consumption occurs, that's a real threat to the environment. And also, as you say, if China is successful in reducing its air pollution in its key regions, there is the concern that over time there'll be less of a focus on cutting CO2 emissions. Although I would argue that China recognizes that it is one of the countries that is most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Right. Wasn't there a recent study that looked at what happens in a, a bad scenario for Shanghai itself, for the city of Shanghai? Yes. Um, a recent study estimates that Shanghai might be underwater by wow. 2050. And Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, the uh, Pearl River Delta, those cities are among the top 10 in the world most vulnerable to sea level rise. So there is a conscious conscientiousness within the leadership, at least, of uh, carbon emissions as a standalone issue, uh, and, and it's not just air pollution. What about in the broader population, though? You know, a recent study um, found that people understand that climate change is happening, 
Many of them believe that it has affected them personally. They understand that it's primarily caused by human activity. Um, but interestingly enough, most people believe in uh, the government's uh, power and willingness to address the issue. So there is less of an effort or incentive to take personal action, although many people are willing to pay a little bit more for low-carbon products and services. It's interesting you say that, that a lot of people in China do believe in, in the government uh, and its ability to address or its its uh, uh, its claims about what it's managed to do. You know, we're living in a moment where we're facing a major epidemic, which is centered, of course, in, in China, in, in Hubei, in the city of Wuhan. Um, many people are asking what the role of the Chinese political system has been in helping to both spread the virus, but also to contain it. I think uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, Joan Kaufman, wrote a really great piece that looked at you know how it's both been a tremendous help and a hindrance that China has such an authoritarian system, which I think is a, a very fair assessment of it. But uh, we might ask a similar question about China's authoritarian politics and their impact on Chinese environmental policy. What's your take on this? Has it been more helpful or has it been harmful? China's focus on clean energy um, through its top-down, primarily through its top-down uh, command and control uh, political system, has been helpful in some ways and not so much in other ways. Um, and it's not just one these days because there is, like in the U.S., uh, much more focus um, in key cities at a bottom-up approach to reducing the impacts of climate change, to focusing on developing clean energy technology. Many people believe that you know China has an advantage in uh, addressing environment and climate change issues because it can basically wave its magic wand, come up with new policies, which it does on a regular basis, and that immediately they will be uh, enforced and, and implemented. Well, as we all know, it's the enforcement and the implementation that are a key problem right. in all Chinese policies. And local governments uh, often feel that they are inundated with policy directives from the, ce the center, and they can't comply with all of them. Maybe it's, many of them are unfunded mandates, or they don't believe it's in their own best interest to comply with um, certain of these mandates. For example, um, focusing on um, uh, cutting their coal use. Mm -hmm. Many local governments believe that their economies were built on coal. They provide jobs. They provide tax revenue. So when the government tries to cut back, they often feel, as the old saying goes in China, that the mountain is high and the emperor is it's far, far away. away. <laughs> uh, um, I, I get that. I mean, and it's also the case that there are perverse incentives, right? Uh, that often they're graded, really, local and, and, and provincial level officials are sort of evaluated in, uh, by the organization bureau or the organization department on basically the crude metric of GDP growth, job creation and things like that. Uh, so uh, is the mentality changing in that regard? Are they trying to, uh, to create... A more comprehensive evaluative criteria that embrace green GDP and things like that? The rating system is changing, both by the central government, which is trying to give equal focus on environmental protection as well as economic growth. Some provinces are going even further than the central government and putting environmental indicators above economic ones. And Others, such as Shanghai, have abandoned economic targets altogether. That's, However, that's the mentality uh, dies hard. Yeah. And local governments uh, in many places, not all, but many places, continue to believe that their path to promotion and career success is to continue growing their local GDP. So we've been talking about some of these, you know, reasonably enlightened policies, but uh, even to get to the point where uh, they would, uh, you know, want to be implementing and executing on such policies, 
a lot had to change. I think we can all think back not too very long ago to a time, you know, when the negotiations for the framework agreement back in the early 90s, you know, and all the way up through through Copenhagen in, in 2009, this Chinese attitude that was always being brought up that China should be treated differently because it's a developing country that, you know, look at you developed Western countries, you've been pigging out at the hydrocarbon trough for 150 years, and now it's our turn at the trough. That has fallen away. I'm really curious, like, what were the drivers that made Chinese leaders really change their minds on this? I mean, I think we all can think of, you know, there's public opinion and things like that, but there were also some, like, I feel like there were some key uh, turning points. 2004, for example, the the big uh, energy uh, shortfalls that happened. Was that 2004 or three? 2004. Right, right. What, what were some of the inflection points for you, and what were some of the big drivers for this changing mindset in the leadership? When I first started working in China for NRDC, when I started our China program, one of the first things we focused on was energy efficiency, that there was so much opportunity for China to use less coal simply by becoming more productive and efficient in how it uses that coal. But when we started that work, China was just not interested. It was still focused on electrifying the country, building as many new coal-fired plants as possible to fuel its economic miracle. And in that decade of the 2000s, after China joined the WTO, it tripled its coal consumption to power that economic miracle. It, It quadrupled its GDP. It quintupled its exports, all focused on coal. But it couldn't It simply couldn't build new coal plants fast enough. So around 2004 is when the country began to experience widespread power shortages and had to close plants down um, or uh, put them on midnight shifts. This was a huge blow to the economy. And that's when they came back to us and said, now, let's talk about energy efficiency. So that, that was the word they used all the carbon intensity was, um, I guess, what I guess they weren't even talking yet about carbon intensity, just energy efficiency yeah, back then. Energy intensity was the first oh, right. time they uh, addressed this issue in the five-year plan. And and the NRDC started working on this, right, um, just how to make your factories. Uh, I mean, I think one of the big initiatives that you guys were working on was was green buildings, right? That's right. Um uh, that does what kind of an impact does that have? I mean, give us a sense. I read it in your book, and I was pretty flabbergasted. I I know that, you know insulating your house is important, but these uh, large office buildings, wow, a huge impact, right? Huge impact because China is the world's largest construction site, and building energy use is uh, f- probably its fastest growing. Uh, source of of CO2 emissions just as China's rapid urbanization continues. There are both the challenges of reducing emissions, but also enormous opportunities for real low-cost, no-cost measures of reducing emissions from buildings. And from a very small start when we helped to manage the very first internationally certified green building in China to the situation we're in today, where China's current five-year plan calls for 50% of all new buildings to meet its own green building rating system and enormous retrofit programs throughout the country. That's one of the things, so the 2004 energy crunch uh, that happened. The other, I think, that everyone is aware of is the airpocalypse. And it was actually, I was talking with Deb Seligson the other day um, on, online, who was trying to remember when was that word first used? Because, I mean, crazy bad was used, I think, in, I think she said it was 2011, 2012. And I think we decided that airpocalypse was 12, 13 that winter. I think that's right. Okay. So what was the impact of airpocalypse? And also, what was the impact of, this, the uh, U.S. Embassy and its, I mean, this is in the age of Twitter, right? So they started to tweet out the daily, or not daily, just hourly uh, PM 2.5 numbers. And then this was something that all of us who were living in China at the time were just glued to. I mean, we all could sort of tell you uh, hour by hour what in Beijing the, the, the PM 2.5 readings were. But this wasn't just among, you know, the, the costed expats there. There was also really important people in China who were were alive to this. And I'm curious what kind of an impact they had. 
there are two things going on. One is that air pollution, which had been building steadily um, uh, for years, did get uh, tremendously worse during that 2012-2013 winter to the extent that it was like as if living in, in Beijing was living in an airport smoking lounge. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, hospital emissions were soaring. And one study uh, found that it was as if every man, woman, and child was smoking 1.5 cigarettes every hour. <laughs> wow. Enormous, enormous. So people could see it. But for many years, people, I, I would go there and say, boy, wow, this air pollution. They'd say, yes, it's a foggy day. People right. didn't know. They didn't have the data. They needed to evaluate uh, this smog and the impacts on their health. And so I do believe that when the U.S. Embassy put an air quality monitor on the roof of the embassy, mainly to provide information to uh, the community in the embassy community, um, it, re- it, it was a turning point. Mm. And, but even more so when uh, Panchiri uh, started retru- yeah. retweeting those hourly readings on his own website, and it became available yeah. to, to everybody's citizens. And that, I think, was a true turning point because public concern rose so fast that by the end of that year, the government had enacted a multi-billion dollar air pollution control action plan focused on the key polluted regions on the East Coast. Let's, let's talk about that action plan. It was uh, to the 2013, uh, September of that year, Air Pollution Prevention and Control Action Plan. Uh, what, what did that actually uh, do? Did it have teeth? How effective was it? It did have teeth. It set targets for four years, the end of 2017, for Beijing and uh, Pearl River Delta, Yangtze River Delta, and that was later expanded to other provinces and regions, limits on not only certain types of pollutants, that PM 2.5, small particulate matter pollutant that most Chinese know that term, um, but also on limits on coal consumption for the first time. Um, that is uh, unheard of, yeah. really, to that date. And the government really worked hard to make sure those targets were met. And that's when actually NRDC saw an opportunity here. And we teamed up with 19 Chinese research institutes, academic institutions, and even industry associations, and together uh, put together a Coal, China coal consumption cap program. Wow. And so what we did um, was issue a series of reports that analyzed what would a mandatory national cap on coal consumption look like? What's the level it should be set at? How should it be allocated to provinces and to sectors? And this was really important because, as I said before, with a national coal cap, you don't have that pollution leakage. Right. It's everywhere across right, the country. Right. And that was enacted in the um, current five-year plan. Give, give me a sense of the scale of the leakage we were talking about. Um, you know, I know, for example, having lived in Beijing, that they all they did for a while was just move stuff out to Hebei. But it, we were sort of in the same air shed anyway, so that didn't really help. And then so they started moving stuff slightly further uh, afield. Still, though, um, there was leakage everywhere. It didn't seem like the, the total level of pollutants was, it, it was, maybe in the Beijing air shed, it was declining, but not, not nationwide. How bad of a problem was leakage? We still don't know the mm. extent of that leakage, in part because one uh, response of China's coal industry was to look for new technologies, new ways to use coal, and to produce things like chemicals. Um, and they have proposed a series of major coal conversion, coal gasification, coal to chemicals projects out in Western China. And we don't know, the government uh, hasn't really come up with a clear policy as to how many of those programs will be uh, approved or not. Uh, coal gasification is something you hear an awful lot about, and you address that in your book. Uh, why is that so problematic? What, what does it do? It, it um, 
it's problematic because the CO2 emissions from this whole process is much, much higher than emissions, CO2 emissions from coal-fired coal power plants, mm, for mm. example, even though they have more opportunities, technologies to capture conventional pollutants. That's the big problem. So, yeah, this is sort of like, yeah, a, a typical kind of thing when the, the, the downside of conflating air pollution and, and greenhouse gas emissions is you end up with coal gasification pro projects that are only addressing one of these issues and not the other. There was another important piece of, of legislation. You're a lawyer, you're a litigator by training, and the NRDC worked to train a lot of civil society organizations in China, NGOs, after the passage of this 2015, I think it was, it was in, in 2015, uh, the Environmental Protection Law, which allowed NGOs then to sue polluters. Can you talk about those training programs and some of the cases that you guys were involved in uh, and there's one I remember that you wrote about in the book. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? NGOs had long had the ability to bring lawsuits in China against polluters. But what the amendments of 2015 to China's bedrock environmental law did was to set up a comprehensive system designed to assist NGOs in overcoming the obstacles they were facing to bringing this type of litigation. And as a litigator, it just amazed me at how much they did in the law and in the accompanying guidelines to help these NGOs who struggle and continue to struggle with lack of resources, uh, lack of training, lack of access to data, and what we did for many, many years was hands-on training of uh, hundreds of, um, even maybe thousands of, uh, of NGO representatives, of lawyers, of judges, of uh, members of the environmental protection um, establishment, and try to show them how this system could work and to help them participate more actively in litigation, but also in environmental decision-making, in Freedom of Information Act requests, China's equivalent of mm -hmm. that. And there have emerged some, uh, just a handful, unfortunately, but some very, very effective Chinese NGOs who now bring these lawsuits on a regular basis. And um, one of my favorite cases is still ongoing now, but uh, two of these um, uh, Chinese NGOs have brought lawsuits in Western China against the utility company, hmm. saying they are not complying with China's renewable energy law, first issued in 2005, which from the beginning required utility companies to purchase all of the renewable energy that was generated within their service territory. That has been largely honored in the breach, but these NGOs are bringing suit and, and looking for compensation for the renewable energy companies for their failure to comply. So the NGOs are able to sue on behalf of, of for example, a plaintiff like a renewable energies company, but it can also bring sort of public interest lawsuits, right? Public interest. That's the system in the law, environmental public interest lawsuits. And unlike the U.S., where you uh, groups like mine have to prove standing, have to prove injury to our members to bring mm -hmm. suit, once a Chinese NGO is qualified and meets certain criteria as, and is qualified to bring these lawsuits, they can bring them anywhere in the country. Wow. And that's what we're seeing here. So uh, that leads me to uh, uh, another question, which is, I I got to think that there are a lot of unsung heroes in this story. A lot of people who uh, played important roles in passing some of this legislature, uh, this legislation, uh, who are heading some of these, you know, spearheading some of these projects at NGOs themselves. I think a lot of people are familiar with some of the environmental activists, like Ma Jun, for example. Uh, some, a lot of people maybe know uh, some of the more high-profile lawyers who've brought environmental lawsuits, like Zhang Jingjing and people like that. Um, who are some of the other big unsung heroes? I, I got to believe that there are some even in um, the environmental ministry and uh, in the, not the NRDC, but the NDRC or... <laughs> Uh, who, are, who are some that you would single out? Well, I have to give a shout out to uh, Wang Sanfa, 
uh, one of China's leading litigators. In fact, mm -hmm. my first project in China back in 1992 when he was a professor at the China University of Politics and Law, he and I were asked to give the very first training program in China on environmental law for judges, environmental protection officials, and NGOs. And I remember him asking me, what happens in the United States when you've got environmental protests? How, do you, how does the U.S. handle that? And I said, well, they do give um, uh, the public you know, the ability to bring these lawsuits and, um, uh, and develop Chinese NGOs. And next thing I know, he had, he had founded you know, the first Chinese NGO designed to do these, uh, <laughs> bring these lawsuits. And he's been very, very successful. So I, I think he's an inspiration to many in China. But like you say, there are people, many people within the government who have also played a path-breaking role, who have worked tire tirelessly um, to, to promote a clean environment and, and low-carbon development. Um, one of them would be uh, Pan Yue, mm -hmm. Pan Yue mm -hmm. who was deputy director of uh, the China's Environmental Protection Agency, SIPA, at the time, for many years. And he pioneered the idea of green GDP. So when China has been focused on meeting GDP targets every year, he said, well, let's redefine what GDP means so that you're not only looking at economic growth, but you take into account the offsetting use of resources, depletion of resources, um, and environmental degradation to right. come up with a real balanced view of whether or not you're promoting a green GDP. That is a major contribution, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Xie Jianhua, who also headed the uh, SIPA for a number of years, but then was China's lead climate negotiator from Copenhagen until just recently. I do believe that he played a very valuable role in the series of bilateral agreements signed by the U.S. and China that paved the way for the Paris Agreement mm. and provided that necessary momentum action by the world's two largest emitters. Because he, he was sort of cast in a black hat role at Copenhagen itself. I think there were a lot of people who were very critical of him, but although privately people told me, no, they think he's actually on the side of good. Uh, I guess he redeemed himself in the years he has between. Himself. Yeah, yeah, that's great, Barbara. A lot of your book focuses on China's efforts, of course, to dethrone King Cole, as you refer to it. Maybe give us a sense of just how big China's coal addiction was. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but is there are there numbers that that we can sort of handily draw on? Um, what was coal in the energy mix uh, twenty years ago? Where is coal in the energy mix today? Uh, how many uh, gigawatts of coal-fired power plants are there in China? Uh, that that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, well, 20 years ago, I believe that coal was something like 70% of China's energy mix and about 80% of its power generation. Mm. There wasn't much else right. at oh the God. time. A lot of the rest was hydro, too, which A is lot not, of the not rest as problematic was, was in hydro. some way. Yeah. Um, Today, this mandatory national cap on coal consumption um, sets a target of 58% of China's energy mix being coal by the end of this year, by 2020. China's mm -hmm. already uh, surpassed that. We're about at 56% now. Okay. That's a huge decrease. Yeah. Um, but we think China can go a lot further. And in the 14th five-year plan, which uh, is coming up soon, we think China can even go below 50%. So talk about this China coal consumption cap plan and policy research project. Uh, what what does that call on? I mean, so besides putting just simply a cap in place, in order to implement that, what, what policies does it actually do? Uh, how, does it, how does it make that a reality? What we're doing now is working with local governments in four key provinces to actually help them implement the coal cap that's been allocated to them. And that's not so easy. No, I, can't imagine. I mean, imagine. some provinces, like Shandong province, consumes twice as much coal as Germany. My God. These are enormous, 
enormous. China produces, a lot of it is not just coal-fired power plants, but coal that is burned directly in iron, steel, and cement plants, heavy industry. Again, a lot of the opportunity there to reduce coal emissions is by making those factories more efficient. But there's a bigger issue here, and that is jobs. The transition for these heavily coal-dependent provinces to clean energy and to other forms of employment for their population. This is something we saw the UK, we saw Germany deal with over many years. China's dealing, we're dealing with it here in the US. So that's what we're doing now. We came up recently with a 60 page report on that very sort of just transition Mm -hmm. for the workers in the coal industry and smokestack industries. And we're, we're working on the ground. That's the only way to really ensure uh, full implementation. And and it's it's great that, I mean, it's, again, one of the important messages that you take away from the book is that it is possible to catalyze a new energy economy. And this is one of those rare areas where you see kind of a, a, a overlap between Xi Jinping and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's a lot of, 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 of thinking in this that, that is definitely redolent of the Green New Deal, this idea that uh, building uh, the transitioning to a green economy will be job creating, will be growth generating. Uh, is that I, there? There's going to be a lot of people, especially in, on the American right, who are just very critical of that idea, who are very skeptical of that idea. What is your argument for why you think that that will actually happen? Are there countries that you can point to where that has happened, for example? I can point to China. China is the leader in green jobs, clean energy jobs of the 11 million. Green jobs uh, worldwide. China mm-hmm. has four million. Oh wow! Um, there's more jobs in clean energy in China than in the coal mining industry. So they have done it. They get it, and it, they've shown how it could be done. Isn't it true that even here in the United States, so many people who work in uh, the the power industry are already involved? I mean, that you know, a significant portion of their hours are spent in renewables and solar installations and wind installations and things like that. You had some stats in there about that, right? Yes. Um, in the United States, the uh, until recently when Trump instituted uh, uh, tariffs on the solar, uh, uh, foreign solar panels, Jeez. the leading fastest growing job category in the United States was solar panel installer. Wow. Um, and the second fastest growing job category was wind turbine installer. These are huge job categories in the United States, installation, maintenance, sales, not necessarily production because for solar in particular, the uh, manufacturing process is largely automated. Right, but right. in the service sector, this is enormous. Wow. Yeah, I think there's really, uh, really good reason to believe this. And um, I think it's important that we start looking more seriously at that Green New Deal and and uh, things like it. Um, let's talk about the the problem. I mean, some of the the, the stubborn problems that s- still persist. Renewable energy is is great and everything, but it tends to get kicked off the grid before coal fired power plants. And this is not just a problem in China, but uh, but also elsewhere in Germany, it's a problem. Uh, where you know the renewables are probably the highest uh, in 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 any major economy's energy mix. What what is this problem? Uh, I mean, uh, of of curtailment, and what is actually being done to address it? Can you explain it to um, people who maybe aren't as familiar? Even though China leads the world in solar and wind capacity, that's how much is available on the ground. I mean, one out of every three solar panels in the world is in China. One out of every three wind turbines in the world is in China. But until fairly recently, much of that energy generated by wind and solar never made it into the grid for a variety of reasons. It's really a complex mix of uh, geographical issues, technological issues, and political issues. I'll start with the political ones. I think the main challenge has been the way the rules of the grid have been designed. Mm-hmm. They were designed, you know, 20 years ago or more specifically to accelerate the 
construction of new coal-fired power plants right, right. as far as possible. So basically, um, every coal plant that was built, regardless of whether it was needed or how cheap it was relative to other uh, forms of energy, was guaranteed um, a certain number of hours of operation, was guaranteed a certain price. So building new coal plants was virtually risk-free. Right. And even as the cost of solar and wind continued to drop, um, as long as these rules were in place, they couldn't compete with the coal plants, who would have year-long contracts with those certain fixed operating hours. Um, that's a big problem. Another political problem is, again, local governments want to promote jobs in their own province or cities. Mm -hmm. They don't want to buy, necessarily, renewable that is generated out in the northwest part of China. So, um, which, by the way, is where most of the uh, wind and onshore wind and solar have been generated. That's just where the resources are for the, for the most part, for these large um, utility scale products, not the solar power that's on your house. Right. So this is that's that's these are political issues. There's yes. technological issues, technological issues too, like storage. Right. That's the biggest one. What do you do when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining? So every country in the world, or many countries in the world, are now racing to develop new technologies for storing that power for for hours or or days or perhaps ultimately weeks, so that they can really integrate all of the wind and solar that's being generated onto the grid. Um, how far are we along with that? I mean, how how is there a, a, 10 years from now, are we all going to have, I mean, are there going to be massive battery facilities that are, that are uh, there to store surfeit power that's generated when the wind is blowing, when the sun's shining? Well, I think we still, uh, we're making progress, but there still need to be technological breakthroughs that will make energy storage cheap enough to become widespread, like with wind and solar, and also to be more environmentally sensitive. Right. Um, and, and China is acting really fast, trying to develop that uh, focus in the 14th five-year plan, we already know, is going to be energy storage, setting targets for higher quality, for lower price, for less of an environmental footprint. So let's see how that goes forward. But we still have a ways to go. You also mentioned geographic factors, and, and we've already touched on the fact that the power generation is taking place in the Northwest. You've talked about the political obstacle of them not wanting to buy power. But even if they did want to buy it, isn't there a Transmission issue? Yes. So China has, uh, well, the state grid company, the, the world's largest utility, has been pushing for the development of a national network, ultimately international network of ultra high voltage transmission lines. They have done, you know, a large percentage, built those uh, lines already, including one that goes all the way from Western China to Anhui province. Wow. That's the world's largest. But um, there are some technological issues here that still need to be worked out for carrying, for using those ultra-high voltage transmission lines to transport renewable energy, um, not just more coal. Right. Um, but there's also economic problems. These are not, you know, cheap. That's why they no. haven't been built <laughs> at, uh, in some places already. So, given China's economic slowdown, we're all also seeing a slowdown in the development of these ultra-high voltage transmission lines. But on the other hand, that gives an opportunity for China to promote more distributed, um, what we call distributed renewable energy, whether it be rooftop solar or community systems that are built where the demand is, where the people are. China's been slow. It's not so easy to really promote these community or individual residential and commercial systems as it is to build huge hardware, uh, you know, out in Western China. But they have upped their targets for distributed um, uh, energy, and I think that is part of the solution going forward. Definitely part of the solution. But another part of it is, as you said, China's population is all on the eastern coast. 
what's off the coast but empty ocean, right? And so there's a lot now. I I, mean, I think China is leading in in offshore wind. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, not quite. The UK has uh, recognized the opportunities from offshore wind. And they are still number one. But just in the past couple of years, China has caught on and is developing very fast, just like it did with onshore wind and solar, uh, investing enormous sums of money, more than anybody else in, in 2018 in developing the technology, hoping to bring down the cost, uh, as it did with wind and solar, training, massive uh, capacity building, and they have targets, targets for offshore wind, and just like anything else, gives uh, certainty to investors right. that if they put their money in this, it's going to be repaid. That's terrific. Um, let's let's turn now to to uh, new energy vehicles and what China has been doing to promote the adoption of zero emissions vehicles. What are the big things, in particular, that the U.S. Uh, might learn from the Chinese example, well, or, just... or or from other examples? I mean, uh, other countries that have successfully used. Uh, really pretty generous um, subsidy programs. Like I think Norway is a country that's done really well in that regard, yeah? Yes, Norway is the leader in terms of the percentage of its vehicles that are electric, um, but the, uh, the absolute number, of course, is much smaller um, than in China. And again, I have to give a shout out to one particular person, um, Wang Gan is his name, um, who I met back in 2000 when he was a automotive engineer just returning from Germany where he worked for Audi. And he had a vision of how China could leapfrog the internal combustion engine and go directly to what they call new energy vehicles, hybrids, fuel cell vehicles, all electric. And really single-handedly, he pushed through this program um, that you're referring to, which includes, and again, interestingly enough, it really began to take off in 2013, the year of the air apocalypse. That's when China's instituted a very generous program of subsidies for owners of electric vehicles, as well as requirements for the government procurement of, of vehicles and incentives for uh, purchasers. For example, they wouldn't have to wait um, for a license plate right. or enter a lottery <laughs> system right. and so forth. And in that short period of time, less than a decade, China has invested some $60 billion U.S. in electric vehicle development. That's 10 times as much as we have here in the U.S. And they've required, they've set strong policies for fuel fuel, uh, emissions Mm -hmm. from eternal combustion engine vehicles and required automakers to meet small but growing quotas of their fleet to be these new energy it vehicles? causes some real anxiety with the automakers. They were all scrambling to partner with Chinese partners who had uh, the capacity to make electric vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. If you add together all the pledges now that global automakers have made following that new regulation, it's some $300 billion over five years wow. in new My energy um, uh, factories, in developing new models and makes of, of, of new energy vehicles. It's it's really remarkable. And, and the really ambitious goal is to ban the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles by, what, 2050, right? Or 20... Uh, not yet, but China's on its way to considering a total ban wow. on internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, Hainan province has announced that by 2030, they will have no more such vehicles. Uh China has some cities already, like Shenzhen, have already uh, transformed their entire uh, taxi fleet and bus fleet to electric vehicles. China is responsible for 99% of the world's electric buses. Wow. And this is something uh, we can learn uh, from China and the U.S. is that China has last May required every major city, if they're not already uh, flipping over their taxi fleet, and bus fleet to electric to come up with a submit a plan for how they're going to do so. It makes every sense, uh, in the yeah. world, especially as the price of these clean technologies continues to drop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they're actually in a position right now where they're starting to, to cut back on subsidies, and, and demand hasn't been damaged too badly. That's the remarkable part, because. The, as I said earlier, the prices drop, dropped so much that China is starting to recognize that 
Uh, it doesn't really need the subsidies anymore. And in fact, it can't afford them. It had gave so much subsidies to wind and solar that so, and so many new plants were built that it had something like a $17 billion deficit in its renewable energy fund. So it is slashing the subsidies for solar, for wind, and for electric vehicles. And leading to, you know, concern that these technologies would be completely wiped out. Well, they haven't. Interestingly enough, um, for electric vehicles last year, 2019, um, sales did drop by 4%. And that's unusual after doubling every year for five years. However, that's much less than the drop in the sales of the dirty Gasoline right. and diesel. This, this isn't about electric vehicles. This is about vehicle sales is dropping. And it's about yeah, 8% slowing. And a much bigger base. Right. right and right. some people think that the internal engine, in uh, combustion engine in China may already have peaked. Wow. Let's hope so. Um, I think listeners are probably almost getting optimism overload at this point. So maybe let's let's turn this to a couple of, of, of issues that I think maybe give us some, some cause for pause. Uh, one of them is... You know, after years of of people feeling pretty optimistic about uh, this shift toward more renewables and uh, deceleration of the increase in greenhouse gas emissions, very recently we've seen a lot of reports in Financial Times and elsewhere about increases actually in approvals of coal-fired power plants, actually increases in coal consumption. I think it's still gone up by 200%. And still, you know, we, we really, you know, if you look at, in spite of all the, the wonders of, of renewables, it's still a tiny percentage of the energy mix. It's what, 2, 2% for solar? 3% for solar. Uh, 3% for solar. 5%, 5%, for, 5% for wind. For wind. Add that 4% up eight, for electric vehicles. Still tiny nu- Nuclear is what? Another? Uh, 4%, 4% for nuclear. Still tiny, tiny right, slices right, right. of the big. Picture. But let's let's first talk about this issue of, of these new approvals of coal-fired plants. What's driving that? How is that being allowed to happen? Yes. Yeah, so following the air apocalypse and this air pollution control action plan, um, we saw in 2014 um, a plateauing of China's coal consumption, which was remarkable. And then it continued to drop for two more years, which meant that China's CO2 emissions dropped for the first time in forever. And also global CO2 emissions um, dropped even as the global economy continued to grow. However, um, starting in 2017, we've seen China's coal use starting to creep up again. Interestingly enough, one main cause of this was a government decision in 2014 to delegate approval authority for new coal-fired power plants to local governments. Ah, those damn local governments. (laughs) In an effort to streamline the bureaucracy, but it backfired. Because as I said before, local governments saw this as an enormous opportunity to approve as many new coal plants as possible. Um, And the central government realized this, tried to put the brakes on it, um, but were not completely- this red light, green light system. Yes, they set up, among other things- a um, uh, traffic light system where they allocated uh, every province a color, red, no more coal, uh, uh, coal plant construction, yellow, maybe a few, green, go ahead. Um, we, we later learned through satellite data um, that many local governments were just continuing. Just running the red lights. <laughs> running the red lights. But, but then, this, then with the economic slowdown occurring, China has... Uh, eased up on that traffic light system, and they have uh, allowed some of this construction to proceed, and they have, in many respects, used uh, tools to uh, stimulate the economy in ways that perpetuate the growth of these smokestack industries. That's what we're seeing now. You said earlier that Carbon doesn't respect provincial boundaries, nor does it respect international boundaries. And China is actually funding something like, what is it? Uh, it's a significant percentage of all the coal-fired plants being built in the world right now. 
Belt and Road projects, which are supposed to be, you know, uh, tilting greener, have, have not in fact been that that way at all. A lot of investments that, that China is making in Belt and Road recipient country, countries has actually gone to coal plants. Um, I think it was like what did you say? It was like a one quarter, quarter, one quarter of of all the coal plants in the world are financed in some way by China. Uh, is 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 Beijing alive to this problem? Are they aware of it? And are, are there um, efforts to to curb this? I think the government is well aware of this. Um, China, Japan, and South Korea are the three largest funders of coal-fired power plants uh, throughout the world. And this comes at a time when more and more global and national financial institutions are deciding that they do not want to finance coal fossil fuel plants anymore. That's too much of a risky investment. Many of these plants will never return on their investment. They'll be what we call stranded assets. They're bad investments. But China's view is that it's the Belt and Road Initiative is really privately run by state-owned, not completely private, they're state-owned <laughs> enterprises, private companies, and, and they claim that they're, you know, agnostic, fuel agnostic to just providing what developing countries need. But really what they need is smart investment in low-carbon infrastructure. Right. And that's, even though China is provi- is also the world's largest uh, financier of of clean energy, most of that investment goes to countries in the developed world that mm-hmm. already have the systems, the policies, the infrastructure in place to accept renewable energy. So there's a big disconnect here. Right. And uh, in fact, recipient countries can be, be doing a lot more to demand uh, that Chinese investments in energy infrastructure be cleaner, yeah? Yes, and what my former colleague uh, Michael Davidson is arguing in a new piece in Foreign Affairs is that really there's enormous opportunity for developed countries to partner with China to help these Belt and Road recipient countries develop the policies and the infrastructure that's necessary to accept this renewable and the financing that's, that's really needed to keep us within our Paris Agreement limits. So there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of obstacles remain. What are a couple of things that worry you most in the the short and medium term? Um, What do you think might derail uh, all this progress that we've seen? Right. Well, the um, coronavirus is is a big concern for many, many reasons, most most important people's health. We're seeing some articles saying that, well, China's CO2 emissions are dropping because factories are shut. what concerns me, in addition to the health impacts, is that once uh, this virus plays out, uh, what is the government going to do right. to jumpstart the economy again? Pent up kind of uh, Are they going or... to, again, focus on stimulating infrastructure growth, which then leads to more iron, steel, and cement production and will send the emissions and the pollution soaring again? Or will they see this as an opportunity to truly make the transition to the new normal of higher quality but slower economic growth? That's the big question. The other question is what is China going to include in the 14th five-year plan? Mm -hmm. That's going to be absolutely essential. We're making proposals and others as well for uh, a plan that will result in, you know, accelerated retirement of the dirtiest, oldest, most polluting plants, um, no new net uh, fossil fuel investments, a reduction in fossil fuel consumption by 2030. Or we think a new report we just came out with says that China can peak its oil consumption by 2025 wow. and coal consumption even earlier because the trouble is they've built so many new coal-fired power plants here. It's just a situation of major overcapacity. Right. You know, 40% of China's coal plants are operating at a loss. That's going to head up to 95%. It's in China's best interest economically to avoid building these, uh, you know, uh, black elephants right. and uh, that's, that's, strand, pre, for an pre-stranded elephant, not assets, as yeah, Amory yeah. Lovins likes to say. One pre-stranded, more thing, that's good. <laughs> uh, one more thing, it's so important, is 
every country in the Paris Agreement committed to increase the ambition of its pledges the ratchet, yeah. by the end of this year. So what is uh, China going to do? <laughs> you know, what is the U.S. going to do? We already know that if Trump is reelected, he's going to withdraw. Right on the election, first, the day after the, day the, after day after the, the election. election right. If there's a new president, every Democratic candidate has pledged to rejoin the Paris Agreement. So what's going to happen in our election is of paramount concern. To, Absolutely. Uh, concern to me. But what is China going to do? Will it, in fact... Um, increase the ambition of its pledges in a way that we think it can do. Many Chinese experts are saying that China can and do more, including including non green non CO two greenhouse gases in its pledge, including specific targets for coal consumption and so forth. So this is a very important year. Yeah, and, and, and the years to come, too, irrespective of who wins the White House, I feel like U.S.-China cooperation uh, is is absolutely vital. I mean, these are obviously the the, the two leading carbon emitters, but I feel like the, our insistence on framing everything through this sort of national security lens and, and the <clears throat> resulting arms race. The and I, I saw a statistic not too long ago about the percentage of carbon in the U.S. It's emitted by defense-related industries, and it's enormous. I've got to think that it's the same for China. Uh, and and how could this possibly benefit us? I just, if for no other reason, my, my, my feeling is, is that we need to be able, even if we compete, we need to be able to collaborate on this one issue at least. We absolutely do. And the fact of the matter is it's in both countries' self-interest right. um, to cooperate and I, I've been delighted to to see that one program instituted by the Obama administration for U.S.-China cooperation on clean energy is in fact continuing, and that is the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center, CERC. This um, involves cooperation between researchers, scientists, companies on both in both countries on building energy efficiency. NRDC is a part of that one on electric vehicles on carbon capture and sequestration. And interestingly enough, the U.S. Congress has reauthorized this program for another five years because they see that it's in the U.S. best interest to help develop the kind of innovation that both countries need and the world needs. Well, that is a good, uh, an, another optimistic note to end on. I, I mean, it'd be terrific if, if we can see Cirque continue. Uh, so thank you so much, Barbara. It was just, what a, what a terrific opportunity. Uh, I'm so glad that you were down here in North Carolina and that we had the chance to chat today. Uh, so thank you so much. Let's move on to recommendations. Uh, but first, let me remind listeners very quickly that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter which is just chock full of great reads all about China, the latest on the coronavirus and, and everything else. It's all delivered to your inbox every weekday. Jeremy and Lucas and Jiayun work really, really hard to bring you this product. It is terrific value for money, so sign up and please spread the word. Okay, on to recommendations. Barbara, what do you have for us? Anything fun that you've read recently that you like? I have to recommend China Dialogue, oh, yeah. online newsletter um, that's been uh, about 15 years, based in London. Isabel Hilton. Isabel Hilton. Maybe you've had her on your program. Yeah, but she's a, a wonderful, Sam Gill, a wonderful uh, group of writers that really focus week by week on the key issues of environmental sustainability. And their goal is to try to increase understanding mm -hmm. of what's going on in China, what the challenges are, what the progress is. And that's certainly something we need a lot more of now. Absolutely. And it's a bilingual um, and it's site. Bilingual. It's one of the few sites that's like bilingual top to bottom. It's really uh, great. They've just, yeah, they've done terrific work. Uh, a lot of the alumni from that have just gone on to do really great things too. I totally heartily re-endorse that. I mean, that's a fantastic site. And, and the source of half of what I know about the Chinese environment, at there least, at least. Um, I'm going to... Recommend something that was recommended by Jeffrey Prescott. Jeff Prescott, when he was on the show just a few weeks ago, um, the time that we're taping now, uh, he recommended 
uh, a book that I had been meaning to read for a very long time, uh, which is Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns, which is just the definitive book about the Great Migration. It spans, you know, uh, a, the, a big swath of the 20th century. And it's just, it had been recommended to me by so many people, and the ex- expectations that I had set for it were so high that I didn't think it could possibly measure up. But it, it surpasses. The writing is exquisite. And it's just, it's just, it's a, um, 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 an amazing book. I've been casting around looking for, what is, has somebody written a book about China's great migration, about what's happened, you know, how we have seen, you know, 700 million people move out of the countryside into the cities and, and, you know, tells the story in a similar way. I mean, I think that I've seen some, there's, there've been some, I think Leslie Chang's book, Factory Girls does a really good job on, on, on that. There are others like that. Uh, but something with that sweeping grand narrative over time, I would just love to see such such a book written for China. Absolutely. So, listeners, if you have recommendations about such books, please let me know. I would I would love to hear from you. Uh, and yeah, you can reach us at Seneca at subchina dot com. Barbara, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. I, I'm feeling uh, super energized by our conversation. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo, that's me, and Jeremy Goldhorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, especially the new excellent China in Africa podcast with Eric Olander and Kobus von Staden. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows coming soon. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.